Well, welcome to our fifth week in our series on what kind of God. We're looking at the attributes of God, the character qualities of God, His nature. Uh, what kind of God is it that we believe in? And we're particularly interested in looking at God as we look at the surrounding circumstances of our day. So this is going to take us into one of the characteristics of God that we just heard about in the hymn sung by the Christ Chapel Choir and Orchestra. I don't know about you, but I really do miss getting together and worshiping together and hearing great music. Um, and it kind of made me anxious and somewhat ready to come back together. But as a church, we're trying to be careful, do the right thing, and we're listening to the authorities and the medical community to see when that might be best. But the lyrics to that hymn that we listen to, Holy, 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 is one that, uh, man, I sang as a kid. Uh, growing up in my father's church, and those words still are familiar to me. And as we listened to it, we, we heard several times the, the refrain, holy, holy, holy. Well, where does that come from? We, we, we heard the choir and orchestra play and sing those words as part of this hymn, and it opens up with, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, where did Reginald Heber, who wrote this in 1861, where did he get those words from? He obviously wrote this hymn, but where did he get the phrase, holy, holy, holy? Well, he didn't make it up. He, he got it from the scriptures, and we find it throughout the scriptures. And I want to look at a couple of passages where it's used and how those passages give us insight into our God. When we talk about what kind of God, we're talking about a God who is holy. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, listen to what Isaiah says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, now listen to what they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here were these angelic beings in this vision that Isaiah was given by God. And he sees them before the throne of God and they're, they're repeating this refrain, holy, holy, holy. It's for emphasis. It's a way of driving home the message that God is holy and he's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We also find it in Revelation at the end of the Bible, in John's vision given to him by God, and it's found in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, and verse 6 and verse 8. Listen to what he says. At once I was in the Spirit. He's going to have a vision. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And day and night, they never cease to say, and you can guess what they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So once again, we fast forward to the end times, which the book of Revelation tells us about. And before the throne of God, John sees in a vision these hosts singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He, he's always been. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. God is eternal. That's one of his attributes. But this week, we're looking at the attribute of his holiness. Now, this one was really interesting to me. Um, if you had asked me, uh, do I understand the holiness of God? I, I would have probably told you yes. I grew up hearing about the holiness of God. I, I know God is holy. I've been told God is holy. The scriptures tell me that God is holy. But the more I studied it over the last few weeks, the more I realized how little I understand the holiness of God and what it really means and why this particular attribute is so important. And I wanted to look at it now because it's going to impact the rest of the attributes we look, look at in the weeks ahead. So we're going to look at God's holiness the holiness of the Lord God Almighty, our holy God. Now, what we're going to have to wrestle with is what that means 
to say that God is holy. What does that mean, not only about God, but what does that mean regarding us? See, this particular attribute makes us uncomfortable. To talk about the holiness of God reminds us of our unholiness. And that's the whole point. Not only is He holy, according to Isaiah and according to John, He's holy, holy, holy. He's three times holy. He is as holy as holy can be. You see, when we think about holiness and the holiness of God, it reminds us that this is the one attribute that we completely lack. You and I have no inherent holiness. We bring no holiness to the equation as fallen human beings. And so when we talk about the holiness of God, it's a reminder of our own unholiness. And that's what makes us uncomfortable with it. But it's essential that we understand what His holiness is and what it means in the context of our relationship with Him. You see, when we think about the other attributes of God that we covered, His knowledge, you know, God knows. God knows all. But we can know as well, right? We, we know things. Uh, we have knowledge. It's incomplete. It's not comprehensive like God's, but God knows and so can we. God has wisdom. He's omnisapient, as we talked about last week. But in a way, so are we. We have wisdom. It's not perfect wisdom. And sometimes we misuse the wisdom that we have, but we have wisdom. Um, and, and God is unchanging. He's, he's immutable. And yet, in many ways, so are you and I. You know, there's the old phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And, and, and to a certain degree, that's true. Um, there are things about you and I that never change. Uh, our personality and, and characteristics about us that remain with us for life. And so, in a sense, that we're also unchanging. Not in the same way, but we can at least somewhat relate to that attribute of God. But when it comes to God being holy, here's the problem. We're not. There's nothing about you and I that's holy apart from our relationship with Jesus Christ. But if we back away from that, if we think about what we were like before coming to faith in Christ, we have to admit that we have no holiness. There's nothing about us that's holy. As a matter of fact, John, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. That word all in the Greek means all. Everybody. Every single human being that has ever been born, that has ever lived, and that ever will live, is born falling short of the glory of God because of sin. We're not holy. In Ecclesiastes we read, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. They don't exist. There are some who sin less than others, but they're still sinners. It's not the quantity of the sin, it's the fact that sin is present at all. So once again, God is holy, but we're not. You see, we're born with sin. We, we inherit the sin of Adam and Eve. We uh, are immersed in sin. We have a sin nature. We have sinful hearts. And so we are anything but holy. We're inherently unholy. And again, that's what makes this particular attribute so difficult to study is because it's a reminder of our pre-Christ condition, who we are apart from God and apart from a relationship with His Son. You see, Paul also said, none is righteous, no, not one. There's nothing about you and me that is righteous, that is remotely holy. And so there's this juxtaposition between God, who is holy, 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 and man, who is unholy, unholy, unholy. We're unholy to the core. And holiness, if you, if you really think about it, holiness is unattainable for us. We can't achieve holiness. We don't have the capacity to achieve holiness. And yet, what fascinates me about the Scriptures is that both in the Old and New Testament, God gives a command, not a suggestion, not a request, but a command. He commanded the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, dedicate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. 
Now, every time I've ever read that passage, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. Because, again, I'm, I'm contrasting the holiness of God with my unholiness and, and realizing that God is calling me to be holy, for He is holy, as He is holy. And that's a high order. He also said the same thing to the church through Peter. Listen to what Peter writes. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Again, let's do a quick Greek word study. That word everything in the Greek means everything. It means in everything you do, every facet of your life, you're to be holy. I'm to be holy. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So what do we do with that? Both in the Old and the New Testament, we're told to be holy as God is holy, because God is holy. And yet, we know from all the passages we just looked at that we are inherently unholy, and we are incapable of achieving holiness, of living holy lives. So, what's going on here? Well, it, it, it all takes us right back to this character quality of God, that God is holy. And I want to look at a few definitions uh, from, from some very bright theologians. And the first one I want to look at is Tony Evans, the pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas. Listen to what he says. The holiness of God is his intrinsic and transcendent purity, the standard of righteousness to which the whole universe must conform. What's he saying? Well, the holiness of God is his intrinsic. It's, it's part of who he is. It doesn't come from the outside in, but it's, it's part of his nature. It's, it's his personality. It's, it's his qua character quality. It permeates every core of his being. And it's transcendent in its purity. There's nothing like it. And as we'll see in just a minute, that it, it's completely pure. God has no sin in his life. God has no darkness and so this idea that His holiness is part of who He is, it's natural, it comes with who He is, and it is transcendently pure, and it becomes the standard for all righteousness. And the whole universe has to come under that standard. There is no other standard for holiness. I can't determine another standard. You can't determine another standard. Other religions can't determine another standard. The only standard we have for holiness is God Himself, and the whole universe, including you and I, must conform to His standard. Well, here's another definition by Charles Ryrie. In respect to God, holiness means not only that He is separate from all that is unclean. Remember, He's transcendently pure, so He's not just separate from all that is unclean and evil, but also that He is positively pure and thus distinct from all others. So he's, it's not that God is just separate from, set apart from those of us who, who are impure and unholy. It's the fact that he himself is positively pure, and that's what sets him apart. It's not distance. It's his character. And so we have to understand that when we're told to be holy as God is holy, there's some pretty strong words here about He's pure. He's without sin. Uh, he's righteous in all his ways. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Holiness, then, is the characteristic of God that sets him apart from his creation. Now, we've, we've seen some words here that are pretty important to understanding what holiness means. One of them is the word separate. He is separate from us. He is distinct from us. Uh, he is set apart from his creation. And all those words are aspects of what it means for him to be holy. He is not like you and I. He's not a slightly improved version of you and I. He's completely and distinctly different than you and I. He's holy. The Hebrew word is kadesh, and it means apartness or set-apartness. It, it, it refers to separateness, that God is separate. He is set-apart. He is distinctly different. While we are made in His image, we're not anything really like God when it comes to holiness. We don't look like Him. We most certainly don't act like Him when left to our own devices. And that's why in Exodus, 
Moses writes this song, and we're going to look at it in detail in just a minute. But listen to what he says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now, he's not giving the impression, or I guess he is giving the impression that there are other gods, but we know from Scripture there's not. There really, there really are no other gods. As a matter of fact, this song that he's writing was written not long after God rescued the people out of their slavery in Egypt, where they had been worshiping the false gods of the Egyptians. And he redeemed them, he rescued them, and he set them free under the leadership of Moses. And as we're going to see, he helped them cross the Red Sea on dry ground, and he delivered them from their slavery and captivity. So when he says, who is like you, it's, it's really a rhetorical question. There's nobody like God. Who is like you among the gods? Nobody. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Nobody. Only God is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. See, Moses is driving home the distinctiveness of God as compared to all else. False gods, the universe, the stars, mankind, kings potentates. It doesn't matter. There is nobody like God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, among men, among the stars, among the universe? No one is like you. He's separate. He's distinct. He's different. You see, you see God is completely sinless. I know of nobody who is completely sinless. My dad died about five years ago, and as many of you know, my dad was my pastor growing up. He was my hero. Um, he was a mentor, a model for godliness, but my dad was not completely sinless. He was a holy man because of his relationship with Jesus Christ and his love for the Word of God, but he was not anything like God when it comes to being distinctly holy. You see, God is perfectly pure in every area of his life. There's nothing about God's being that has impurity. There's no darkness. There's no sin. There's no hidden areas. He has no skeletons in his closet. He's perfectly pure and he's wholly righteous in every way. Everything he says is righteous. Everything he does is righteous. He is righteous to the core and he's entirely without, without equal. I think that's what Moses is trying to drive home in this passage. Who is like you, O Lord? Nobody. You have no equal. There are no false gods. There are no men. There, there's nothing in the universe that is anything remotely like you. I love this passage from Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. See, here's God calling himself the Holy One, the set-apart one, the distinctive one, the different one. And he says, who are you going to compare me to? Give me a name. And you're not going to get far. There is no comparison. There is no one like me. In 1 Samuel we read, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Nobody can come before Him as His equal. Nobody can claim to be holy as He is holy. He's the holy God. He's the holy one. He is the set-apart one. He is the distinctive one. And see, that's what this, uh, just intimidates us. That kind of holiness, purity, sinlessness, perfection intimidates us, intimidates us because we're nothing like that. It's like when you get around somebody who's just incredibly smart or amazingly talented. You know, you may, may play golf and then suddenly you meet somebody who's a professional golfer and you're intimidated by them. You may consider yourself an actor of sorts, and then you meet a, somebody who is a, an award-winning actor, and they intimidate you. Well, as Christians, those trying to live godly lives, when you come into contact with the holy God, it intimidates you because you realize that you're not. But God intends for it to inspire you and amaze you. And that's my goal. As we go through this characteristic of God, I want it to amaze you. I want it to inspire you. I don't want it to intimidate you. God is not telling you you need to be just like Him. That's impossible. But He is asking you and I to live separate, distinctive, distinctively different lives as His followers. I love this from uh, David in his Psalm 8. He says, 
When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, speaking of God, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should, you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? When I think about how great you are, how separate and distinct and different you are, how holy you are, and the power that's uh, exposed in your creation of the moon and the stars and mere mortals, I I'm blown away. He goes on and says, yet you made them, these mere mortals, only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. See, David's blown away when he thinks about how holy God is and that God would even give notice to mankind and then give them authority over all that he made with his powerful hands. He's blown away. But that a holy God would acknowledge sinful man was more than he could get his head around, his heart around. It, it, why would this holy God who made the universe, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnisapient, full of wisdom, why would he have anything to do with us? See, holiness should amaze us and it should inspire us, not intimidate us. And Job felt the same way. He said, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Why would God bother with us? Well, because that's the way God is. God is loving. God is caring. God is compassionate. God created us. God has a plan for us. And while God is holy and separate and distinct and set apart, he deigns to pay attention to us. And more than that, he has a plan for us, as we'll see in just a second. So if we go back and we look at Exodus chapter 15, we look at this verse, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? See, he asked this question, and again, it's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer, and he certainly, if anyone does answer, he's not expecting them to say, well, I have someone. There is no one. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Who is like God? This is Moses after the deliverance of the people from their captivity in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, escaping Pharaoh and his army. He's singing the glories of God's holiness. And we're going to look at... An, at a greater number of these verses in chapter 15 of Exodus because they tell us how Moses understood the holiness of God. It reveals to us how he relates to God's holiness. It's not some esoteric, ethereal, nebulous thing that he can't get his head around. It's, it's very concrete and it's very tangible because it takes place in real life. Listen to what he says in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Egyptians. When God opened up the Red Sea and the Israelites crossed over on dry ground and they got to the other side and then Pharaoh and his army attempted to cross over, the, the sea closed in over them and they perished. The earth swallowed them. And so he sees in this an action of God that is attributable to his holiness. He says, you stretched out your right hand. Then he says, you have led in your steadfast love of the people. You led us. You led us out of Egypt. You led us across the sea on dry ground. So he, he says, you've led. And then he says, you've redeemed. You've set us free. You've, you've paid the price. You've done what was necessary to get us out of captivity. And then he says, and you've guided us. See, this song was written by Moses right after they crossed that sea, right after they were redeemed, right after they were guided by God and led by God. And he is so blown away by God's holiness and the fact that God would reach down and do this for them. See, he had intervened on their behalf. God heard their cry. We talked about this last week. He heard their cry and he answered their cry. He did something. He entered into what were very sorry, dismal circumstances where they had been 
in captivity for 400 years. They were making bricks without straw. They were abused. They, they were living in unbelievable conditions. And God, that holy God, that distinct, set-apart God, reached down and did something about it. And it was all undeserved mercy and grace. They did nothing to deserve what God did for them. But He did it. In His holiness, He reached down. He was holy, yet He engaged with unholy people. And let's face it, they were living unholy lives. They were not worshiping Yahweh. They were not uh, sacrificing to Him. They had long ago forgotten who Yahweh was. That's why Moses said, when you send me and I go and I tell them that this God is going to set them free, who do I tell them has sent me? He knew they wouldn't know who Yahweh was. And yet, in spite of that, he engaged with them. He intervened on their behalf. He remained set apart, distinctive, different, and yet he was not separate. He was not separate from. He, he didn't just say, forget you. He didn't look down from heaven, hear their cries, see their condition, and then say, can't get my hands dirty. Can't get involved. I'm distinct. I'm different. I'm holy. I'm set apart. No, he reached down and he delivered them. And that's huge. And we have a similar story or a similar idea found in the New Testament with Mary, the mother of Jesus. When Mary was told by the angel that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, her response was interesting. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is the Magnificat, that song of Mary, another song, but this one in the New Testament. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, her. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see how she makes the link between what God has done for her, and in many ways, in spite of her, and his holiness. Just as Moses did in his song, she sings the praises of God's holiness because of how God entered into her circumstances. She was a young Jewish girl. Uh, she was um, bearing a child in her womb, and she was not yet married. They had not completed their betrothal, their, their marriage ceremony, and so many people were wondering if she was bearing a child out of wedlock. And yet into that circumstance, God entered and he did something fantastic for her. So let's back up and go to verse 1 of chapter 15, this song of Moses. And we're just going to read through it. And I want you to, to listen to what he says. As he, he pens this song and then sings it to God, glorifying him for his holiness. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy." Then he goes on, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood, stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. See, here is Moses describing what God did on their behalf. This holy, holy, holy God entered into their circumstances and did mighty deeds. And that's why he says, who, who is like you? There's nobody like you. See, as we go through the circumstances we're going through right now with this pandemic and, and all the uncertainty and all the confusion, and, and are we going to ever be released? Are we ever going to get back together and be able to worship, go back to work, do the things that we want to do? 
what we need to understand is that our God is holy, 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 and He is intimately involved in our circumstances. And He is going to do mighty deeds. He's already doing mighty deeds. And at some point, we're going to be able to say, holy, holy, holy is our God. Who is like you? There's nobody like you. I love this from Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here, here's Isaiah getting ready to pen the very words of God. And he describes him as the one who is high and lifted up. He's separate. He's distinct. He, he doesn't live among us. He's not anything like us. He inhabits eternity. He, he's eternal. We're not. We're temporal. And his name is holy. Listen to what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is a, of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that amazing? To think that this God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in a high and holy place, is also with those who have a contrite and lowly spirit. And what does he do for us? In his holiness, in his separateness, because he's the only one that could do this, he revives the spirit of the lowly. He revives the heart of the contrite. And that should make us say, what other God is there? Who is like you, O Lord? And the answer is nobody. Only he is high and lifted up. And yet, in Psalm 33, it says, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees the whole human race. From his high and lofty place, he looks down. And from his throne, he observes all who live in the earth. He made their hearts, and so he understands everything they do. This goes back to his omniscience, his omnisapience. God knows, he's wise, he understands, he has a plan. But he looks down from heaven. See, God is in his heaven. God sits on his throne. He is high and lifted up. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. And, and yet, he made us and he understands us. That's an amazing thing to think about. But what does all of this have to do with us? What do we do with this information about God's holiness? Well, I, I want to go back to Tony Evans' definition the holiness of God is the standard of righteousness to which the whole universe must conform. This is huge. This is essential for us to understand as those who believe in God and who are followers of Jesus Christ. You see, God doesn't conform to anybody else's standard. There's nobody like Him. There's nobody superior to Him. There's nobody holy, 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 holy. And so... Nobody sets a standard other than God. He doesn't conform to my standard, your standard, the government standard. He does, doesn't conform to anybody's standard but his own. And all creation must conform to his. He sets the standard. See, the problem with the world today is that everybody wants to set the standard for righteousness and holiness. We want to deem what's right and good and acceptable. You know, in the book of Exodus that, that we studied a number of months ago, or the book of Judges, I, I mean, they, they said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone wanted to be the one who decides what's right, what's holy, what's righteous. But God demands, commands that his creation conform to his standard. And see, his standard is how we know evil. I want you to think about this. Evil is evil only because God is holy. If you take God out of the equation, if, if as atheists believe and claim that there is no God, then there is no evil because there's no righteousness. There's no standard for righteousness. There's no way to know what's right and good other than opinion, what you think is right, what you think is good. How do we know that Coronavirus is actually evil if there's not a righteous God to determine what is holy and righteous and good. See, the holiness of God is essential for human life. He establishes the standard for life. His holiness is the bar we have to reach, and that's why His holiness can be so intimidating to us. And yet, 
We know from Scripture that God has made a way for, for sinful men to be holy. We have it pictured in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. There's a lot packed into these few verses, but what Paul is reminding you of as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Why? Because He loved us, He chose us in Christ so that we might be holy, that we might live lives without fault. That doesn't mean we're going to live sinless lives. We most certainly don't as Christians. But we have the capacity to live in obedience to, in submission to, a holy God. And we have much to owe God for that. That we can be seen by God as without fault. When He looks at us, He sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and He doesn't see our sinfulness, He sees our righteousness, because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Paul tells the Colossian believers, once you were alienated from God and were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds, you were set apart, you were different from Him, you were an enemy of God, but now He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, and blameless in His presence. See, this holy, holy, holy God has done incredible incredible things for you and I. And the most incredible is sending His Son to die in my place and your place so that we may, might be made right with Him and from His perspective be seen as unblemished and blameless in His presence. That's, that's pretty amazing. But Paul's not done. He tells the Ephesians, He, Jesus, gave His life for her, the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's Word. He did this to present her to Himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Now, this is not going to be fulfilled in its entirety, in its fullness, until Jesus Christ returns for the church an event we, we call the rapture. When Jesus comes back and we, we who are alive, as we know from 1 Thessalonians 4, go to meet Him in the air, and then we go to be with Him. See, we will not be completely holy and without fault until that day. And yet, because of the blood of Christ, we have been cleansed, and God sees us through the blood of Christ, and He sees us as holy and without fault because of the righteousness of Christ. We have been imputed that righteousness. Not our own, but His. And that's what God has done for you and I in His holiness. Paul told the Corinthians, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We have been made righteous. We have been justified with God. This holy God, as distinct and different and set apart as He is, has done this for us. And only a holy God could make our holiness possible. When, when Isaiah says, Who is like you, O Lord? There's nobody. Nobody could have done this for us. Nobody would have done this for us. We couldn't do it for ourselves. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Achieve for us holiness. Restore us to a right relationship with Him. Something we couldn't do and something we didn't deserve. God made a way. You know, when we look at Exodus chapter 15, God made a way for the Israelites out of their captivity and across that sea. And then He made a way for them across the wilderness, and eventually into the promised land. But God has made a way for us as well. You see, God's always making provision for mankind's sin problem. He's always doing something to remedy this problem that we've created it. 
And, and if you go back to the Old Testament, as the Israelites were crossing the wilderness on their way to the promised land, one of the things God did for them was that he gave them the tabernacle. He designed it. He gave them every detail regarding its construction, how it was to be used, what was to take place within it, and there was a purpose behind it. And I want to just take a second to look at this little diagram, which is in, in your handout. But this is the basic layout of the tabernacle, looking down on it. And there were three basic sections. There was the courtyard, there was the holy place, and then there was what's called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there's a flow here. There's an order to what God is doing that as, as the Israelites came to the tabernacle where God's spirit dwelled, where God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in that holy of holies above the ark, they would come through the main entrance and they would physically, emotionally, psychologically move towards the holy of holies. They would enter in. They would come in. And one of the first things they would do is they would offer sacrifice and confession of sins at the bronze altar. They had to be purified. They would make their way to the bronze laver, and there they would be cleansed, and they would receive forgiveness for their sins. They would enter into the, the worship area. The priests would enter into the holy place. The, the rest of the Israelites could not enter in. But in that holy place, there was worship that took place the worship of God, but only one man, one time a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies and have an encounter with God. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement, when he would make atonement for the sins of mankind. See, God made a way. God had a plan. God had a purpose. There was a flow to enter in, to receive to offer sacrifice and to confess sins, to receive cleansing and forgiveness, to worship God and then have an encounter with God. That's the Old Testament model. God making provision for sinful men. Even though God had set apart the Israelites, He deemed them His own. They were His royal priesthood, His chosen possession, and yet they were still those who wrestled with sin, but God made provision for their sin just like God made provision for our sin. If we fast forward to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews makes a comparison to the Old Testament and the tabernacle and Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for you and I. Listen to what he says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place, the holy of holies, because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting Him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, what the author is telling us is that there's this incredible comparison going on between what took place in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, which was a sign, a symbol of the greater reality to come in Jesus. And he's telling us that Jesus, with his death on the cross, if you recall, when he died, we're told that the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy, the holy of holies, was torn in half from top to bottom. It's estimated that it was about six inches thick, woven fabric. And it was ripped by God from top to bottom. And it opened up the entrance into the most holy place where God's glory dwelled. Where previously only the high priest could go one time a year. That was done by God for you and I with the death of Jesus Christ. That we might go right into his presence. No more barrier. No, no, no more need for a priest. No more need for intercessions. And not only that, our guilty conscience has been sprinkled clean with Christ's blood. And we have been made clean. We have been made holy. We have been made righteous. And our bodies have been washed clean and pure. See, this holy, holy, holy God has made a way. 
He made provision. And that's why we study His holiness. That's why we embrace His holiness. That's why we sing about His holiness. That's why we rejoice in His holiness. It should not intimidate us. It should inspire and amaze us. And we, just like Moses and Mary, should sing of His glory and His holiness. Well, here's your discussion questions for this week. Why would it be beneficial for us to consider the majestic holiness of God? That's how Isaiah described it. Majestic and holiness. Why would it be beneficial, helpful for you and I to think about, consider, meditate on how majestic His holiness is? Secondly, when you stop to consider just how unattainable God's holy standard is, how does it impact your view of what He has done to make you holy in His sight? When you think about just how unholy you were and that God sent His Son to die in your place for your sins so that you may may be made right in His eyes, how does that impact you? What does that do for you? And then finally, I want you to go and read Romans 12, verse 1. I I want you to read about it, but I also want you to think about it. Meditate on it. And then I want you to discuss, what does this verse say to you about holiness? Why is holiness so important? See, we, of all people, should be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this word, this uh, reminder of your holiness. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to take for granted. Father, it's outside of our ability to fully understand just how holy you are. We can't see you. We, we can't experience, experience you like we can experience a friend or a family member. But Father, you are real. You are with us. You condescend to us. You, you entered into this world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He became God with us. God in human flesh. And Father, you, even though you're holy and set apart, have stepped into our world. You have intervened into our circumstance, and you are still intervening in the current circumstances. Father, may we, like Moses and like Mary, may we be willing to sing your glory and your praises for your holiness, but also the fact that in your holiness, You have stepped into our world and you have provided a way that we might be made holy and righteous in your eyes. Thank you for that, Father. And thank you for this incredible reminder. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching. And I hope you'll uh, uh, take time to do the, the discussion questions and that you'll tune in next week as we go into the next attribute of God. Have a great day. See you next week.